This is Our American Stories, and it's time now for our American Dreamers series. And today, you're in for a treat. A celebration of the life of Tim Duncan. And if you're not a sports fan or a basketball friend, you're saying, Tim who? Because he wasn't Michael Jordan. Everybody knew Mike. He's a very different guy. This is a celebration of the life of a man who won five NBA championships, and all with the same team, the San Antonio Spurs, a team he was with for his entire professional career from the day he was the number one draft pick out of Wake Forest in 1997 to his retirement in July of 2016. My goodness, that just never happens anymore. With Duncan at the helm, the Spurs won 71% of their games, the best 19-year stretch in NBA history, and better than any team in any North American team sport, too. And the Spurs never once had a losing record during his career, and never once, and this is extraordinary, never once missed the playoffs. Upon his retirement, CBS Ken Berger wrote this, Tim Duncan leaves in his wake an unprecedented era of team success that in some ways detracted from his own individual greatness. They'll never talk about points, rebounds, or dunks when it comes to the big fundamental. They'll talk about winning. They'll talk about championships. And there can be no greater testament to excellence. Here's just a little bit of Tim Duncan's personal excellence that was obscured by his greater excellence. He averaged 19 points and almost 11 rebounds a game over 19 years. He was a two-time NBA MVP, three-time NBA Finals MVP, and NBA Rookie of the Year, and I could go on and on and on. And get this, basketball wasn't even his first sport. If it wasn't for Hurricane Hugo destroying his family's Olympic-sized pool at his childhood home of St. Croix in the U.S. Virgin Islands, we might all know Tim Duncan as an Olympic swimmer. It was only then that he found basketball because he needed a new sport. That's crazy. When he finally retired after 19 seasons, he did so in perfect Tim Duncan style. He said nothing. He had the San Antonio Spurs put out a press release, and he didn't even have a quote. The only interview he eventually did was with a childhood friend on an internet radio program. This is so cool. He left behind a legacy of being one of the greatest NBA players of all time, but perhaps his greatest legacy that makes him a true standout in this fame-maniac culture is his unassuming humility. It was never about Tim Duncan. His life's work had spoken for itself, being a part of a great team. Oh, my goodness. Be still my heart. On December 18th, 2016, the San Antonio Spurs held a ceremony to retire his jersey. And I'm sure Tim didn't want to be there. You could tell he didn't want to be there if you watched the video. You could see him squirming about the fact that he had to sit there while other people showered him with praise. But he had to be there. They wanted to celebrate him. A sold-out crowd of over 18,000 fans. And we're going to bring you highlights from this extraordinary occasion, starting with his teammate, Tony Parker. Because Timmy will play the game so easy. Like, you have, like, I, mean, I talked to Mano, I was like, Timmy was not that good tonight. I and mean, he had, like, 30 points and 20 rebounds. And I was like, that was a quiet 30 and 20. I was like, that's the only guy that can do that. 
that many times, every night I look at the stat sheet. My first two years in the league, he won MVP two years in a row, my first two years. And every night I look and I'm like, wow, 40 and 26, I didn't even see it. Like, that's crazy to do that. That's very hard because he's so unselfish. And everybody keeps saying that he's unselfish because he makes everybody around him better. And that's the true definition of a superstar. And next up was another teammate, Manu Ginobili. I just want to t- uh, talk about um, how, how tough of a competitor he was. Many of the games uh, in which he struggled, struggled for his standards, which was probably at 26 and 10. Uh, he was very upset because maybe he missed a big shot. Maybe he was not as sharp as he wanted to. And so many times he came to the hall and said, that's on me, guys. That's, this is my loss. It was my bad. I wasn't ready. And we knew that we look at, it, at each other and say, oh, my, tomorrow he's going to be there very early. <laughs> he's going to be very early there. So he would, next morning, he would get his headphones, get into the gun, the, you know, the rebounding and passing machine, and shoot there for hours, you know, right-handed hook, free throw, banker up fake, dribble, shoot, and you go there early to do treatments because you were tired and the guy was there shooting and, and showing everybody else how, how it's done. And Ginobili continued with a story he'd never shared before with anyone. It was 2006, playoffs in Sacramento. Uh, we were up to one, uh, and Pop designed a play. I had to, to, to finish the game. We were tied. I not only messed that play up, I turn it over, but they run on transition, they scored, and they, we lost. It was 2-2, uh, and I was devastated. I was truly embarrassed to, to have turned the ball over like that, and it really hurt me. I wanted to vanish. I wanted to dig a hole in the floor and just hide there forever. Uh, so I went to my room, I hid there. I didn't want to talk to anybody, so I turned the phone off, and... Uh, hotel room started to ring. I said, I don't want to talk to anybody, so I ignored it. Started to ring again, so I pick it up and hang it. Third time, I hang it again. Fourth time, I unplugged it. I said, yeah, come find me now. But then, there was another one in the bathroom. By the, by the fifth time, I go pick it up, I say, what? And it was, Nanu. That's the way he called me, Nanu. Uh, he goes, what's up, buddy? What, CD? I don't want to talk to anybody. You know what happened. Come on, come with me, come with me. And he started insisting, 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 and you don't say no to TD. So he said it. And he invited me to dinner. We talked for hours. We talked about computers, cars, TV shows, whatever. The whole night shift, my mental state shifted. And, you know, I had a, a way better night than could have been otherwise. Those are the type of gestures that I'm pretty sure you can go and ask most of his teammates around, and they all saw it. And that's leadership, folks. Tim Duncan was celebrating his retirement here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we're celebrating the life of Tim Duncan because the city of San Antonio celebrated it recently, and it's a life worth celebrating. Tim Duncan, a big star who didn't act like a star and didn't bring attention on himself because he was too busy winning championships and too busy doing things like you just heard, trying to bring his boy Manu Ginobili back to life by going out and forgetting about the mistake because everybody makes mistakes. And, and Timmy Duncan knew that nobody beats himself up harder than Manu Ginobili. You don't need to go in and yell at Manu. You need to go out and have him play a video game or have a drink. And now, and ultimately, well, Tim Duncan did have to get up and talk. And before that, though, coach had to. And there was only one coach, and it was Greg Popovich, Pop. But when Popovich gets the microphone, he immediately hands it over to David Odom, who was Tim Duncan's college coach at Wake Forest. Out of respect for Dave, out of respect for embracing and grooming this unlikely basketball player from the U.S. Virgin Islands. Here's Dave. As I walked up here, I was reminded that myself and two of Tim's college teammates are sitting up here someplace. We're probably the only three people in this building tonight that have seen something that Tim Duncan's done that not a single person, including the coaching staff here at, uh, in the Spurs, have done. Tim's first game at Wake Forest was something like zero points, three rebounds, and one block. He said seven rebounds. I'm not going to argue with him. But the story is we lost to a Division II team from Alaska where they don't even play basketball. And I said to him after it was over, Timmy, what gives? He said, Coach, I'm leaving a lot of room for growth. (laughs) And he did. 22 years ago, I received a phone call in my office at Wake Forest. And this 6'9", 185, 190-pound islander from the Virgin Islands called and said, I want to come to Wake Forest. I want to study. I want to get my degree, which he did in four years. And I want to learn the game of basketball, and I want to play it for a career, which he's done. And by the way, he didn't just get a degree. He was also a research assistant and co-authored a book on egotism. Go figure. And he understood, Tim Duncan, what egotism and narcissism can do to a team. It can destroy it. It's actually a cancer. Anybody who's been around narcissists knows what they can do. And when Wake Forest coach Dave Odom completed his tribute, Spurs coach Greg Popovich was now ready, finally, to give his. And he talked about Tim Duncan's quirks, And in one case, how he eventually discovered that what he thought was a quirk was actually something incredibly profound. He's also strange. Uh, I don't know how many times I've had to bring carrot cake to his room. 
or he would be miffed. We're in a city and I'm in a restaurant and they have carrot cake. And so whenever that happens, I get the carrot cake, I bring it to his room like two or three in the afternoon, he might be sleeping. So I just set it at the door. I don't know what mice or whatever else has been eating on it, but I, I set it by the door, I'll knock and then I'll leave. And he got used to this, so it, I had to do this for 20 years. <laughs> Carrot cake for 20 years. David and Bruce never bothered me that way. Sean didn't bother me that way. But, you know, Timmy's special, so he had to have, he had to have carrot cake. You know. The first practice is his gym shorts are backwards. Reminds me of somebody now, wherever he might be. I don't know where the guys are. And we said, what, what's, what's the deal? He goes, this is what I do. This is, this is, this is, how, I, this is how I roll. I looked at the coaches, they looked at me, RC, we talked, he said, I don't think we care how he wears his trunks. <laughs> so he did it the entire, entire time. Uh, <laughs> he's a, uh, an enigma in some ways. Uh, you think that Kawhi Leonard doesn't talk much. When Timmy first got here, it was like mental telepathy. I would, I would say something to him, and he would stare. The same stare that, same stare that Tony gets on the court. And I wasn't sure if he was paying attention, but, you know, he was a great collegian and played at a great program, so I'm figuring he understands what I'm saying. And finally, I realized that he understood everything I was saying, probably agreed with about half of it, but he's so respectful that he wouldn't say anything until later. He, would, he won't do it in front of the team, and sometimes I'd be merciless. And and for that, I'm really thankful because you allowed me to coach the team. Uh, if your superstar can take a little hit now and then, Everybody else can shut the hell up and fall in line. And that man did that for me. And there you have it. Now we know why the Spurs were the Spurs and Coach Popovich was the coach he was. Timmy Duncan let him be the coach. And here is how Popovich, Pop, to his friends and players, closed out this tribute to Timmy Duncan. And the last comment I'm going to make uh, before I promised I wouldn't use this tissue, so I'm not going to do it. Uh, this, is the, this, this is the most important comment that I can make about Tim Duncan that uh, I can honestly say to Mr. and Mrs. Duncan who have passed that that man right there is exactly the same person now as he was when he walked in the door. Greg Popovich and Tim Duncan then hugged, both fighting back tears, and then all that was left was for Duncan to say a few words, and in Tim Duncan fashion, 
They were short words, and between each thing he said, he held the microphone against his chin, head down, for 30 seconds, thinking about the very best words to say. Here's Tim. I've heard from uh, teammates, from the guys who have been with forever, to guys they played a year or two with, to these jokers over here. <laughs> just a, a, an amazing response uh, and just an overwhelming amount of love from these guys for what I meant to them. And it doesn't even ex explain how much they meant to me because I got so much more from you guys, from my teammates, from these guys over here than, uh, than they can explain that they got from me. And I know that. He next thanked Coach Popovich. Thank you, Coach Pop, for being more than a coach. For being more like a father to me. Thank you. And here's how Tim Duncan closed up the retirement ceremony for his jersey, number 21. I'm going to tell you this. I won a lot of bets tonight. I didn't wear jeans. I wore a sport coat. I didn't wear a tie, so a bunch of people knew that. Uh, and I spoke for more than 30 seconds. <laughs> Thank you, San Antonio. Thank you. And there you have it, Timmy Duncan. By the way, my favorite team of all time watching the San Antonio Spurs, and I'm a Jersey boy who's loved basketball from the earliest day, and watching that team play the way they played, one of the joys of my life, the selflessness, the way they rooted for each other, the way they covered for each other, a rare thing, and we know the heart of the team always was Tim Duncan, and of course, what a coach Popovich is, but even Pop admitted, without the star letting him take a notch at or take a shot at him. There was no chance of coaching the rest of the boys, the rest of the men. This is our American Stories, American Dreamers segment, Tim Duncan. our American stories and today we have one of our favorite regular features with marriage coach Deb Olniak, our in-house marriage coach and this is our marriage on the mind segment and this week she brings us the story of Ed and Alyssa whose love story began like a Hollywood film but then reality hit they soon had to deal with the issues that arise when there is a lack of openness in a marriage and we start with how Ed and Alyssa met. We met back in 1998, I want to say, and uh, I, I was uh, a nightclub owner in Oshkosh. Recently gotten out of school, went into partnership with a friend of mine, and Alyssa was a patron of my, um, of my bar. And uh, it was a nightclub, and she came in, she was one of the regulars that came in, and I was more or less, I would say, a, a bad boy. She came in and you know, we started, we started seeing each other, and yeah, kind of went from there. 
And Elisa, what did you think of Ed when you first saw him? Um, I was there with friends, and we were hanging out, and someone came up to bring me a drink and walked away, and my friend was like, do you know who that is? And I said, no. And she's like, he owns this place. And I was like, oh. (laughs) So, you know, it fit right in with my lifestyle at the time. I was a senior in college, and it happened to be the only club that offered dancing, and I love to dance. I have a dance background. So... We fit. We fit. The first time we talked, I bet it was one of those romantic, you know, it was like six hours we spent on the phone, and he showed up weekly with flowers and really started to pursue me. Wow. And how long did you guys date before you got engaged? Well, the story is really important to tell that we, I slowly, I slowly decided that this probably wasn't the lifestyle I wanted to live And my sister had been praying for me and had this talk about, you know, is this something you imagined in your life that, you know, your husband would run a bar? And that really changed my heart. And I I really became unsatisfied with our relationship. And I told Ed, well, we can go to a church or you can move on. So there was kind of a turning point. Um, Ed had gone through some, some depression. Definitely he was going to be losing the nightclub. His partner embezzled a whole bunch of money from him. And so he was going down a deep road, and I was walking away. And so we ended up meeting at a church that was kind of close to both of us. I was raised by my mom, and she died when I was 21 at a pretty young age. I got her life insurance, and she basically left me with a quarter of a million dollars. And uh, in the matter of a year and a half, I seemed to spend all of the money went into $30,000 in the hole, and the guy that I went into partnership with at this nightclub embezzled over $50,000 out of the club. Mm. And so I didn't want to be alone, and I met Elisa, and we pretty much fell in love, and I was at a at rock bottom, wanted to commit suicide and because uh, I had lost everything, and she said, let's go check out this church um, that's behind the apartment that I was living in back in 1998. And I said, what, what do I have to lose? I don't have anything to lose. And uh, I went, and that Sunday at that church, the pastor of that church was about a year older than me at the time, so he was about 22, 23. He preached on the parable of the lost son. And I said, I looked at her, and she looked at me, and I, I, just, started, I just started crying like crazy. And I was like, he's speaking right to me. Like, this is my life. And I wanted to know more about Christ, and I want to know more about this life. A few months later, um, we were engaged. We were engaged. We have learned later, years into the marriage, that he really just wanted to be with me. So he was just going to do what he needed to do to stay with me. So really, mm. you know, we started in what I thought was going to be this, you know, fairy tale. He loves Christ and he's going to lead me. He did the best he could with the resources he had, but God hadn't changed his heart. I mean, we both thought we were happy, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Didn't we? Yeah. Ed was going through all of the motions, and I believed him. And that can happen. And if you're listening carefully, (laughs) going through the motions and folks believing each other, uh, that's a lot of marriages, I'm sure. And then things started to change. And how far into the marriage did you guys hit kind of that speed bump where you go, something's not exactly right here? Four years. About four years in. Okay. And who said what and what occurred that made you realize that that was happening? 
I was in our basement um, doing some work on the computer, um, and I had discovered that my husband was looking at pornographic sites. Mm-hmm. Um, and that stopped for me. Um, that changed my world. That changed my life. That changed our marriage. I called my pastor. I completely freaked out. Um, I was hurt beyond any words. I was broken. I was cheated on. Everything, all these emotions came up when I thought my husband's looking at another woman and not me. I tried to control um, his problem, which is probably what I did most of the beginning. So my baggage, you know, from my childhood started coming in there. Um, But my mom was very in charge and in control. So that's what I went into. I went into trying to control his addiction and probably pushed him further away. I started some intense counseling, and he did also. I wasn't wasn't making men's meet. My wife would come home and the power was shut off in our house because I forgot to pay the bill. I mean, I was, I was pretty, pretty pathetic at that point. And again, resorting back into my old ways of porn and the addiction that I had. And when I came home from work, it was in the middle of the week. I came home and there was nobody home. The kids, the kids were gone. She was gone. I had no idea where they were. I went into the closet and half of their stuff was gone. And she didn't tell me she was leaving. She didn't tell me. I didn't know where she went. or you know, I figured it out. I mean, she went to her sister's. And you stayed with your sister for what, like? Two months. Two months? I was there for a while, and um, there was a person that I didn't really know so well in my life that I was coming back to meet with Ed through our pastor. He had encouraged us not to be separated too long. Um, and this woman, I was talking with her in the car, and she said, you, you don't get to quit. And I said, what are you talking about? And she said, you don't get to just walk away. You made a commitment in front of the Lord, and you're going to stand in front of him someday and tell him, you know, why or why you didn't walk away. And, you know, Ed and I definitely had many conversations on, he would say, just divorce me, just divorce me. And I said, I, I won't. But he never would, and he, he would often use it as a threat. So it was then um, that I made this commitment. I didn't really know why. I just decided that I was, it fit with my strong personality. I'm not going to walk away. I don't know how. I read The Power of a Praying Wife, and I got stuck on Chapter 1. You know, I was excited that I had all these things I could pray for my husband so that I could change him. But Chapter 1 says, God changed me. And that's when I broke. I thought, what? I'm the one who has to change, and I listed all these things he had done wrong, and I thought, if I don't mirror Christ to him and my children, there may be nobody else that does. And so I did. I dove myself into Christ, and I got lost in him, and I came home, and I was a different person. I was strong and confident and loving in a way that wasn't codependent, because I wasn't going to be codependent anymore. And that is some powerful testimony, and we appreciate Ed and Elisa sharing, Elisa sharing those, those heartfelt sentiments. And when we come back, we're going to be joined by our marriage coach, Deb Olniak, to talk about this and to talk about the many situations that she's seen in her life and walk us through this. And if you're listening and this sounds familiar... 
Uh, you're going to love the next segment. After a few moments and a short break, Deb Olniak joins us. This is Lee Habib. Our Marriage on the Mind segment. This is Our American Story. our American stories, our Marriage on the Mind segment. You had just heard from Ed and Elisa and the troubles in their marriage. And joining us now, Deb Wolniak. And Deb, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. So let's pick up the story where they left off, Deb. Deb. They they, uh, decided to go on a family retreat where Dr. Richard Marks of LiveTheLife.org spoke. Tell us about the family retreat and what Dr. Marks talked to not only this couple about, but I would assume, Deb, the many other couples who joined Ed and Elisa. Well, I'll tell you what. This camp that they went to, some people are like, where is this place? It's in Wisconsin. It's called Fort Wilderness. And Dr. Richard Marks is a frequent uh, speaker up there and does an excellent job on helping couples address some of the challenges they have in their marriage through teaching and storytelling. And one thing I love about him, he's one of the best in the country that can meet with couples one-on-one anywhere in the country and help them privately with their relationship issues to people that are in groups like this was. And um, Ed and Elisa were at a point in their marriage where, you know, they thought everything was fine. They were going along just fine and they were up at camp and, Elisa realized at the first talk she heard from Dr. Richard Marks that she might be a walkaway wife. And some people are like, what is that? And let me tell you what that is. It's a wife who appears on the outside to be absolutely fine, holding the home together, driving the kids to school. Things are fine, but there's something that's not right in the marriage. And there is a possibility for some people to experience this around, oh, year four, year seven, year 10, where they're right in the thick of lots of pressure in their family. And they have actually taken time with their husband at one point to try to discuss their feelings. This is how I feel. I don't know if something's right. You know, they're kind of that emotional caretaker of that relationship. They want to spend quality time together and have meaningful conversations and activities with their husband. And for some reason, the busyness and the activity or the husband is not hearing it right just kind of goes on deaf ears and they go through the motions. And some of us know what that feels like. We get up, we do our daily tasks, we go to bed. We get up and daily tasks go to bed. And our heart is not being paid attention to by our spouse or vice versa. We're not investing in our spouse. There's a point where a woman will shut off. 
they won't talk about their feelings anymore. They don't even want to, you know, um, go into a conflict mode. And husbands have a tendency to think, well, we're doing great. You know, guys come up to them at work or wherever. How are you guys doing? Oh, we're great. And all of a sudden, the wife starts to plan the drop-dead date. That's the date that she is planning to exit that household. This could be when kids are about ready to go off to college or when they become empty nesters. But in her mind, she said, I'll put up with this because no one's reaching out to me and I'm done. And they can hold on for 10, 15 years, and then suddenly the husband is receiving the divorce papers out of nowhere, and he says that word that all the wives were like, see, I told you so. I didn't know there was anything wrong, he says. And that's proof that she realizes, I have done this for so long, and you haven't even been awake. This is one of the most devastating things, because things that we do on this radio program, the stories we share are to help encourage people to wake up in a reality today and start to do marriage and relationship well in a healthy way that's going to help benefit them as a couple and their children. It is unbelievable how many marriages end like this, and it doesn't need to. And if you're feeling like that and you're on that spectrum somewhere, I really, really want you to reach out to organizations like LiveTheLife.org down in Florida like Great Marriages up in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. You need to get help in your area. If you look at um, some of the things with Prepare and Enrich, I've said that before, that is crucial to understand where your strengths and challenge areas are, and you need to be able to identify what that is. Dr. Richard Marks was able to have a personal conversation with Elisa up there at camp, and she said, I don't know if this is me. And he said, yes, it is. And she had a wake-up call Ed had a wake-up call during that time, and they were starting to be able to address some of the core issues that they had been dealing with over the last few years. And in the end, it's like all things, it's just communication. And no matter what the wife might have thought, maybe she wasn't communicating clearly enough to Mm -hmm. the husband. And moreover, maybe the husband just wasn't listening. And it takes, you know, the two of them, as always, are probably to some degree to blame but Deb, the, the walkaway wife is, is much more likely to occur than the walkaway husband, correct? Oh, that is absolutely correct. Because the woman most of the time, and it's not all the time, is the emotional key holder. And when it's almost like the canary in the mine shaft. You know how the miners would go down and if the canary dropped dead, that means the loss of air and some of the poisonous gases are in there. They got to get out. Yep. If your wife says, warning flag, I feel blah, blah, blah. Do not disregard that. You need to stop what you're doing, put everything down, turn and look at her and say, tell me more and do not be afraid. The one thing that keeps this bad situation in play to push people apart is fear. It's the fear of, oh my goodness, if I open this can of worms, I don't know how to close it or I don't know how to deal with it. You must deal with it or it will deal with you. And, you know, the, the Dr. Marx's approach here, Deb, how did he deal with them individually? Did he take them apart? Um, did he have them together, both? What, what was his approach here uh, with this couple? So in this case, I did not get the full story on that. I'm going to be very honest with you on that. But I have seen him work with different couples in groups and um, have heard some of those pieces from the couples themselves after meeting with Dr. Richard Marks. And here's what the outcomes are. 
There is a point where in that conversation, the couple realizes that there's a problem. The couple then um, usually ends up talking about it with Dr. Richard Marks and really digesting that a little bit. Where does that come from? Um, in the storyline, um, we hear Alyssa, um, Alisa, I'm sorry, talk about um, the pornography issue. That is rampant in our country and absolutely devastating for those that are seeing that on their computer. I've, I can encourage anybody, if they're struggling with that, to look up covenanteyes.com to help uh, monitor the equipment that's in their home, the computers, the phones, et cetera. This can be a huge help to families who have teens, which, by the way, is one of the fastest-growing audiences for porn, that 68% of young men and 18% of young women view porn online at least once a week. That's just our young folks. For those that are struggling and maybe even have had um, an adulterous situation, if they've committed adultery, the men increase their chances of looking at pornography by 218%. And men are more likely to look at porn um, than women. I think some people may have known that, but it's at the rate of 543% more likely to look at porn than females. Um, and so there's, there's a lot of risk. Once porn starts entering the picture, it's very hard for couples to try to gain a foothold. In those very difficult situations, you need an accountability partner, and you need to talk to somebody full honesty and uh, vulnerable to make sure that you are emptying that basket and trying to get help. One of the things with porn is, is it's an addiction, and you cannot treat it lightly. You must address it head on, and you must be honest with your spouse. Can spouses stay together? Yes, they can, but it takes lots of work and lots of honesty. And in this case, this couple, you can hear it, has a faith background. That's what they use to help address this issue. Look for healing and look for forgiveness so that that person owns the behavior that they had and yet still receives that healing part that comes along once you work through those situations. It's not a quick fix. It's not a Band-Aid situation. You have to go deep to root this one out, and that's a very serious thing. And if you're struggling with that, you need to call a professional in your area. If you have further questions, I would highly encourage you to look up Dr. Richard Marks with LiveTheLife.org and get a hold of some of those professionals if you have further questions, and they can also refer people in your area. Yeah, and again, that faith background, particularly, Deb, must help on the forgiveness front because it's a requirement, at least, of uh, Christian faith and, and Judaism as well. And, and you just you have to do it. You don't have yeah. a choice. Uh, but right. this, this pornography issue, what, what, just shortly, Deb, in about a minute and a half, what, what are some of the underlying circumstances or reasons for that, the top two that you've heard or seen in your, in your work? Well, I think a lot of it, a lot of the men I've talked to have said that they've been introduced to pornography either by friends or by a family member, possibly even their dad. And some of it is inadvertent. Um, I remember also when our technology uh, was first coming online and the web was coming online, I remember when we did not have some of these safety measures up, you could accidentally click on something and boom, something would pop up and you'd be shocked. I mean, even our kids looking on the web, you never know when it's going to hit. The thing that that is also happening is it's like um, cocaine. You can't stop it or like heroin. Once you start, it's like a bottomless pit unless you get help right away. 
um, you can get sucked in so fast, it will affect your relationships. And it's very hard to get out of by yourself. You need to get help. Well, it's an addiction, and we know that. And we, well, we have to talk about it. And we talk about everything here on Our American Stories. And you've got to talk about this if you're talking about marriages, because it affects so many, as does alcohol and drugs. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Our Marriage on the Mind segment, as always, brought to us and with Deb Woniak. Deb, thanks so much for everything you do. Thank you. You bet. And thank you, Ed and Elisa, for sharing your story with us. stories and you're listening to Ray Charles and we've already done an hour on the man who discovered Ray Charles and the founder of Atlantic Records, Ahmad Ertigan, but his partner was Jerry Wexler and what a life, what a career, acts that you all know, that you all love, he either signed or produced and that's Ray Charles, the Allman Brothers, Aretha Franklin, Led Zeppelin, Wilson Pickett, Dire Straits, Dusty Springfield, He even did one of the great Bob Dylan records of all time. For the hour, the life of Jerry Wexler, born on this day in history in 1917 in the Bronx, New York. Wexler had a Jewish father of Polish ancestry and a mother of German ancestry and grew up in the Washington Heights neighborhood of Upper Manhattan. He graduated from high school at age 15, and dropped out after two semesters at City College of New York. In 1935, Wexler enrolled at what is now Kansas State University and dropped out several times. By the way, that's a recurring theme here on this show, that so many of the titans of so many industries, well, they didn't learn what they needed to learn in college. Following his service in the Army, Wexler became a serious student, and he graduated from Kansas State with a degree in journalism in 1946. And by the way, he started to work at a little place called Billboard, and that's where he cut his teeth in the music business. Here, and we always like to do this in our American stories, is bring the words from the man himself, and in this case, from the grave. I mean, Jerry Wexler is dead. But here, Jerry Wexler talks about his earliest musical influence, Bing Crosby. My first big influence was Bing Crosby in the 20s. Of course, we only had one radio in the house in Washington Heights. And my mother and father were fans of a radio show called Easy Aces. It was a rather advanced, highly evolved human, Goodman Ace, who later on became rather a well-known writer for uh, people like Bob Hope and many screen people. And it would go on at a quarter to seven. We'd have our dinner at six o'clock. However, at a quarter to seven, Bing Crosby came on. And uh, I was co-opted with Easy Aces. So my pal, Cy Ampol, and I would make our way several blocks to the east 
to uh, a sporting goods store called the Vegas, and in the vestibule, that a big console radio, and there would be, Bing would come on. It's amazing how he remembers the details, and that's what music can do for your life. You can remember moments and events so clearly when they're tied to music. Wexler here talks about his other early influences that he would listen to on the radio, hidden under the covers at night. The next thing that came along was big band broadcasts. Probably the earliest big band that I could remember was maybe Don Redman, who had a, an orchestra of some repute but was better known for the arrangements he did for Fletcher Henderson. Now, I suppose some of these talismanic names would be uh, like uh, talking about Neanderthal cave people to most of the listeners, but uh, as Casey Stengel said, you could look it up. Uh, the Fletcher Henderson Band, the Jimmy Lunsford Band. Uh, like I say, I remember Don Redman uh, doing what they call remote broadcasts at night. I'd have the radio on under the blanket so that... Uh, Parents wouldn't come in and turn me off. Sounds similar to what your kids are doing right now under the blanket. Don't judge them too harshly, folks. Jerry says that he then started collecting records. I started collecting traditional jazz records, which at that time would be a little more than 10 years old. I mean, because when you talk about 37 or 38, the earliest collectible recordings, probably with 24 to 26. Louis Armstrong, Hot 5, Hot 7, Bessie Smith, um, King Oliver, Sidney Bechet. And we used to go chasing these records in all sorts of odd places. Wexler was becoming a serious record collector. Here he describes how he and his friends would hunt for used records. So I will tell you how we used to go scouting and looking for used record stores, usually under an elevated railroad line. And we'd go in there and into Salvation Army depots and old furniture stores and open up the Victrolas that they had there. And there would be these old 78s. Also, if you were really lucky, you would find a store maybe in the outer boroughs, a record store that had been there for years and had a lot of records packed in the basement. Uh, and the labels were OK, and Brunswick, uh, Vocalion, and especially the Jeanette label, uh, where Big Spider Beck recorded, and the New Orleans Rhythm Kings, and Jelly Roll Morton. In fact, a book came out several years ago, and it had a big Jeanette octagonal green label on it. And uh, it was the kind of thing that uh, gave you a chill when you saw that label. Wexler started to meet others who collected used records, just like he did. Some people who would also go on to become big names in the music industry. It became such a passion that the few of us who were doing this all got to know each other. It was a little, a wee happy few little, you know, enclave. And it included people like John Hammond, Bob Thiel, George Avakian, the late Russ Sanjak, who was a great pal of mine. The Erdogan brothers, when they came to this country, Alfred Lyon, who started Blue Note on an inspired guess and became the probably the treasure trove of traditional and modern jazz. And Wexler explains here that jazz was the pop music of its day. 
There was a time when jazz was the pop music of the day. Uh, let's say Benny Goodman, for example. Undeniably, it was a jazz orchestra or jazz band, and nevertheless, it was on the jukeboxes, and it was on the hit parade, and so jazz was the idiom for all too brief a time, and now, of course, has become uh, a very specialized corner for the Illuminati. Um, it's uh, like you start on rock and roll, and when you grow up, you go to jazz. <laughs> this is Our American Stories, the life of Jerry Wexler. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to Aretha Franklin, one of the many artists that, but for Jerry Wexler, we might not be listening to today. By the way, just a couple of comments about Jerry Wexler in a New York Times obit that was written about him. And again, he was born on this day in history in 1917. But here's what Ray Charles had to say about him. He had an extraordinary insight into talent, and how talent thought and worked. And it's so true. And Wilson Pickett, and that's Mr. Midnight Hour and Land of a Thousand Dreams and so many other hits, said, how could he understand what was inside of black people like that? Pickett told a reporter. But Jerry Wexler did. Again, a white Jewish guy with Polish ancestry and some German ancestry and yet producing all these great black artists and southern artists and, well, every other kind of artist, you name it, even British, leads up on a British blues band, a bunch of white boys who channeled, you know, Clarksdale, Mississippi through their lanky white British bodies. But let's return to Jerry Wexler and his early life. Jerry thought he could produce better records, but didn't know how or whether it was possible. I always had the demented notion that if I only had a chance, I could make better records than I was hearing, than what I was hearing in the records I was buying. I was very quickly disabused of that notion when I became a partner in Atlantic Records and went to my, into my, the studio for my first session because it, it was deathly fear. <laughs> I didn't know that whether I wanted to make records or not. I mean, this was just a... Uh, a fancy, you know. It wasn't even uh, what I would call a... Uh, I wasn't even motivated by the notion because I didn't think it was possible. Wexler explains that the only person producing records at the time was a guy named John Hammond. The only one who was really doing it was John Hammond at that time, who started in 1928, a commissioned by Sir Joseph Lockwood of a British record company, to record certain American artists and orchestras which were not available. So that the earliest records, for example, of Fletcher Henderson were done on commission by Sir Joseph Lockwood for Parlophone and then came out in America. So John was the one and he was our idol and our hero because 
you know, he, did every, you know, he discovered Billie Holiday, took her into the studio with Benny Goodman. He uh, convinced Benny Goodman to admit Negroes, as they were called in those days, the blacks into his band. Uh, he produced Bessie Smith's last session in 1936 and went on not only in making these incredible jazz finds, but accomplished signing the likes of Bob Dylan and Bruce Springsteen. And here was Jerry Wexler and Ahmed Ertegen at Atlantic Records, and they were building and developing a stable of black talent. And Wexler was one of the first to see music without color, along with his partner, Ahmed Ertegen. They were in the minority in the late 1940s and early 1950s, though. How did Jerry Wexler deal with all that? I was a partner in a small record company called Atlantic Records. And Atlantic operated on the premise that we were going to specialize in a kind of music uh, in which we could thrive and survive, or by which we could thrive and survive. That meant we had to go to black music because with the major record companies, while they did address black music, they did it on one foot and casually. There wasn't a you know, heavy effort. And we saw a vacuum there. We and a lot of other companies, independents, and this was in the late 40s and early 50s after World War II, the big band period was over. Bands were out of favor. Uh, restrictions on travel had helped kill the band business and also because of the war there was such a commingling of influences that it became the global village. Marshall McLuhan had it absolutely right. Uh, some farm boy from Arkansas met a blues singer from Mississippi. Uh, some you know, folk singer from Florida met a jazz guitarist from New York. And suddenly all of this came together, and out of it came rhythm and blues. Country music was percolating. And uh, there were no records, uh, not insufficient records, to meet the new demand. So there's a vacuum, and in our marvelous free enterprise society, the wherewithal emerged to meet the, the need, the vacuum. First there was the demand, and then the records. And it's so true, without free enterprise and free markets... How would you have solved the demand for this product? So why was Atlantic Records formed in the first place, and why at first? Well, it was primarily black artists writing and singing for black folks. Atlantic Records was founded to uh, make black music by black artists for black adults, very specifically. So we had blues, we had urban, good-time music, honky-tonk music, uh, a lot of jazz, a lot of jazz-inflected rhythm and blues. And we did very well, I'd be so bold as to say. And we just seemed to keep advancing. But the music was compartmentalized and categorized. As everybody knows, what makes hit records is radio play. So we couldn't get our records on the radio, but we got them on the, the black radio stations, which had sprung up to serve the needs, serve the needs of the black community. What held Atlantic back from big growth, getting played 
on white radio. Of course, the black radio stations had a restricted audience. It was a black audience and far less in numbers than the big white market. So, uh, but our music was beginning to emerge and people were looking at our music, white people, white singers. They would even take our records into the studio and put them in the control room and have the engineer and producer literally copy the arrangements and the sounds. So Georgia Gibbs jumped on a record like Tweedledee Dee by Laverne Baker and uh, Bill Haley on Shake, Rattle and Roll. Where we did the original with Joe Turner. And, of course, Shaboom by the Chords, which was covered by the Crew Cuts. And it did get irksome to see us losing the sales in the big market. Of course, that changed uh, with Lady as uh, time went by. And there was a, a social involvement. There was a consciousness raising. And uh, we had... We finally had our shot. Oh, and did they ever. And when we come back, we're going to cover that shot. And it starts with an unlikely singer and song, and one we all know, but a story about this song, Mac the Knife, that I'd never heard and didn't know. You're going to hear about Muscle Shoals, Aretha Franklin, Led Zeppelin, Otis Redding, and so many more greats, Etta James included. And we're talking about Jerry Wexler. We love to tell music stories here on Our American Stories. We've told stories about songs and how they came to be. We've told stories about artists and featured them for an hour, and that's everything from Miles Davis to Frank Sinatra. And, of course, the remarkable Nirvana Unplugged, which is one of the great concerts of all time. And let's not forget the Allman Brothers. Jesse's cueing me. Uh, It wasn't just black music. It was some white guys... Well, coming close to playing perfect black music. And that's the thing about Jerry Wexler. He didn't know color. Greg and Dwayne Allman didn't know color. And it turns out America was at a place in time where color was mattering less on the music front. And it was men like Jerry Wexler who were there pushing open and breaking down barriers and, again, pushing open doors. This is Our American Stories, the life of Jerry Wexler, born on this day in history in 1917. Let's listen to the Allman Brothers.
This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to Otis Redding. And it was Jerry Wexler who brought Otis Redding down to Memphis and sent a lot of business to the Stax folks there. And he's the man who discovered Aretha Franklin. Well, he didn't discover her, actually. If you've ever seen the movie Muscle Shoals, Aretha had been discovered by CBS. But they were trying to craft her into and turn her into uh, somebody, somebody like Diana Ross. Real pop, highly orchestrated pieces, and it just wasn't her. And he was just sitting there, Jerry Wexler, waiting for them to drop her. And when they did, he signed her up right away and sent her down to a little town in Alabama called Muscle Shoals and slapped her together with the Swampers, this tremendous group of musicians. And pretty soon, while well, they were just printing hit records at Atlantic Records. And none of that would have happened for Jerry Wexler without his first crossover record. And here he tells a story about a song we all know and a singer some of you know. The real first crossover record was a white record. It was Bobby Darren's record of Mac the Knife. And people didn't know he was white. And he was, in fact, our only white artist. And it was Bobby Darren's record that finally managed to project us into the big ball game, because one thing led to another. Uh, a lot of that had to do with the sagacity and perspicacity of my partner, Ahmed Erdogan, because uh, Bobby Darren had been on the label and made about six sessions and nothing happened, and everything was getting old and tired in the Bobby Darren department. And he walked in with a song called Splish Splash. And uh, I said, this is an amusing piece of garbage. And Ami said, no, it's a hit. So he went in and cut Splish Splash with Bobby. And it was a hit. And then he cut Mac the Knife. And Bobby was established. And now we had a foothold in the pop market, in the white field. And what would happen, Bobby would do a session in California. Ahmed would meet some people in California, like Nino Tempo and April Stevens, Sonny and Cher, uh, Stevens Stills of the Buffalo Springfield, the whole market opened. And then eventually Atlantic got into the British picture with things like Led Zeppelin and Yes and Rolling Stones. But our big crossover really... It never really happened uh, that our black music crossed over. Motown's music crossed over. In fact, it would hardly even be called a crossover. It went directly to the sensibility of the white teenager. Our records were beaming at the Negro, the black adult. And uh, so while we had Ray Charles, Aretha Franklin, the Sweet Inspirations, uh, Chuck Willis, Joe Turner, an endless roster, Solomon Burke, Wilson Pickett, Ivory Joe Hunter, the Coasters, the Drifters, on and on and on. And we never really, we never went platinum with any of those records. And now I may be busting somebody's bubble talking about this like this, but that's the truth. We got into the big market, 
when we addressed the big white audience. Uh, if everybody that I met today had actually bought the Ray Charles record, he told me that he bought when he was a kid coming up, we'd be quadruple platinum, platinum up to here. But it's something that is more talked about than done. And it's so true. And indeed, they were hit records, but hit records not like the ones they'd experienced with bands like Led Zeppelin. Again, it was mostly black music to black people. And again, Bobby Darren was a white guy. And some black folks bought the record, but it was a huge hit with white radio. And ultimately, one of the biggest bands of all time gets signed. And it's a bunch of British kids who, by the way, channeled the very sounds from the blues and soul that Amert was making and Jerry Wexler was making and Chess Records was making. And the very first record from Led Zeppelin featured a Willie Dixon song. And here is a part of it. So if you ever get a chance, pick up Muscle Shoals, the documentary. What made Jerry Wexler Jerry Wexler, you'll learn there. And you'll also learn in the next segment coming up, because we're going to dig into one particular record, one particular artist, and what made Jerry Wexler the man he was, the decisions, how he coached artists, how he worked in the studio, how he got the sounds that he got. We're going to dig into that now. We've gotten some biography out of the way. And I told you earlier about his discovery of Aretha and sending her down into the studio in Muscle Shoals. There's this great scene where Aretha Franklin flies into this little town in the middle of nowhere. And she had left Memphis. She grew up uh, the daughter of a Baptist preacher, got to a big city up north, and boy, did she think she'd ever return to a little town where it was mostly cotton fields? Not exactly what she was looking for. She walks into this studio, and it's all 20-something white kids. Nothing like she'd expected. There's tension in the room. She's walking around. You see this scene. They filmed it. It's fabulous. And Jerry Wexler had sent her there. Wexler was there in the control room. And he was just letting the vibe happen. He was just letting these people come together. They were stuck on a song. They were trying to figure some things out. And then one of the keyboardists or the main keyboardist from the Swampers sits down and starts this riff that became the new sound for one of the greatest singers of all time. Let's take a listen.
This is Our American Stories. When we come back, perhaps Bob Dylan's greatest record, Jerry Wexler was asked to produce it. He did. And when we come back, the story of that record. Celebrating the life of Jerry Wexler, born on this day in history in 1917. stories you're listening to dusty springfield another artist that jerry wexler's career made possible and now we're going to spend the final segment on one album one artist and it's bob dylan and it's the record slow train coming some people think one of dylan's greatest it's also the one where he he comes out as a christian it is shock people some people even call this a controversial record uh but dylan did it anyway and dylan always did things his way and at the time, Wexler had left Atlantic Records. He was at Warner. And at his, at his heart of hearts, he was always a record producer. And, well, Wexler here talks about meeting Bob Dylan, really, for the first time. I was doing a record with Eddie James, and Bob walks in with a coterie of three or four. And I didn't know he was coming. Of course, instantly, everything stopped. And a cordon sanitaire, a holy ring forms, and nobody dared step over it, you know. And uh, so, of course, I stopped the session, and I welcomed Bob and his friends. And he said to me, you know, I've been writing on the piano lately. He said, I got some new things going. So we went out in the studio, and he stood at the piano, and started playing some chords. Uh, I don't think there's any question that you have more latitude writing on a piano than on a guitar because you have more opportunity for harmonic expression. You've got more chords and more things you can do. Uh, that was that. And that was that, and that's why this record sounded so remarkable for a Dylan record. And that's why so many people were blown away by it. It wasn't just the great lyrics, which we'd always associated with Dylan. It was the music. And it was Jerry Wexler. And it was more. Here is Jerry Wexler talking about working with Bob Dylan at Muscle Shoals. Then one day he calls me up and says, hey, I want you to do my next record. So when it's Bob, it's, uh, yes, sir, you want me to jump? How high? Where do I land? <laughs> and we worked out an idea. I thought I would take him to Muscle Shoals. But when uh, I said to him, let's go to Muscle Shoals, he said, that sounds good. And then I said, but 
I don't want to use the usual Muscle Shoals compliment. I don't want this to sound like recycled Stax record or an old Wilson Pickett record. I want to change it up a little. And I would like to use Mark Klompfler of Dire Straits. Use him because I would occasionally bring outside musicians in to play with the Muscle Shoals band for what I call the aesthetic rub. When some new ingredient would be added to a known setup to change the sound. He will always surprise you. You think he's out there on cloud nine and absorbed with whatever. and He knows everything, believe me. Because when I said to him, I'd like to use Mark Knopfler of Dire Straits, Father says to me, yeah, he said, he does me better than anybody. <laughs> so I said, Not that we propose to have him sing. So he brought Mark Knopfler and he felt comfortable having his own drummer. So we used his drummer, Pick Withers, instead of Roger Hawkins, who was my preferred drummer, you know, almost of all time in Muscle Shoals. And we had our horn group, and Bob had his gospel group. He had a trio, two girls and a man. We rehearsed, uh, prepared in Santa Monica, because he was living in Santa Monica, and we just went to a rehearsal studio. And Barry Beckett and I went out there. The material started now to reveal itself. After a while, I said to Barry, I said, well, pal, looks like we got wall-to-wall Jesus coming, which didn't faze me at all. I didn't care because it's Bob. Uh, if you want to do the yellow pages, yes, sir, you know, where do we start? You, know, you want to start with A's or C's? And... So that was no problem. So we rehearsed. And, you know, that's the thing about music. It didn't, doesn't just transcend racial bounds. But here was Dylan. It was very clear now, Wexler discovered, that he was about to make a gospel record. And yet, well, here's Jerry Wexler talking about sometimes a little bit of the strains, but in the end, the humor, the dignity, and the true nature of music bringing people from every walk of life together. Bob was in a, a, an evangelical mood, and he thought he would proselytize me. He said, did you ever get into this New Testament? I said, I've looked at it, but I'm more into that other one, that other King George version, the earlier one. You know? <laughs> and, uh, and I said, Bob, I can remember my quote. So it must have been 14 years ago. I said, Bob, you're talking to a card-carrying 62-year-old Jewish atheist. Forget about it. <laughs> that was why he laughed. And he laughed. And then they went on and made one of the greatest gospel records of all time with songs covered by every gospel singer imaginable because those songs are that good and the arrangements are that remarkable. Wexler, there he is. And what is blues music? What is the music he loved? But in the end, what was its root? Gospel. But again, this is the beauty of music. And the beauty, by the way, of the American story, the quilt that is America. Wexler here talks about how it was not always easy working with Dylan because Dylan loved to control things. He was the irrepressible Dylan. We'd be making a take and he'd pick up a tambourine and he'd hit a couple of licks or he'd go over to the Fender Rhodes, hit a few chords, pick up the guitar. And we took a break during the session 
I went back to my office, uh, Bob and I, and we cooled out. And he said to me, this is 71, mind you. He said, you know, I've done the word trip. I want to do the music trip. I, I didn't know what he was talking about at that time. I only had a vague idea, and it just passed. Uh, when we wrapped the session, I had a cottage on the beach at Bridgehampton at that time. And uh, Doug Salm and Bob came out. I had dinner. They stayed over. They jammed. They had their guitars. I got in the way with my bongos. And that was uh, my first real uh, meeting with Doug, because of, uh, with uh, Bob, because it was close. It was not uh, peripheral or incidental or hello, how are you? And uh, we bonded pretty well, I thought, right then and there. And that's how they bonded musically. You know, you can know somebody, but until you jam together, you don't know them. More from Wexler late in this interview, we talked about how they recorded. And it was fascinating, because in the end, it was a new process for Dylan. The musicians got to find their grooves first. No singer, no singing. Find the pockets. Then bring in the singers. Do some live stuff. Then go back into the studio Listen carefully to each of the pieces from the live recording. Do the overdubs. Then add in the gospel singers. Dylan had never done it like this before. And my goodness, what a record. Wexler says here that he knows he didn't fail on this record. You know, to be known as Aretha Franklin's producer, uh, Ray Charles's producer, Bob Dylan's producer, that burnishes the image. <laughs> so... Uh, since I have a normal sense of self-gratification, it's made me very happy from that aspect of it, that I went to work with Bob Dylan and I didn't fail. He sure didn't. Let's take a listen to the introduction by Kenny Rogers of Bob Dylan at the 1980 Grammy Awards. In the 60s, he raised our consciousness with his lone, soulful voice blowing in the wind. In the 70s, he knew the times were changing, but he never followed. He was always the innovator. And now as we enter the 80s, he's still there with a presence that constantly reminds us that if we're going to make it, we've got to care about the, what the world around us needs. I can only be talking about one person. This year, nominated for Best Male Rock Vocal Performance, here is Bob Dylan. And Bob Dylan won a Grammy for that performance. The record ran up the charts to number three in America, number one in England. I asked him once, said the biographer and filmmaker who chronicled Wexler's career, what do you want written on your tombstone, Jerry? He said two words, more bass. When Bob Dylan accepted his Grammy Award, he first thanked God, then he thanked Jerry Wexler, born on this day in history in 1917. This is Our American Stories. 